You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Good morning. How many of you can see it? I mean, all of y'all raise your hand. You are right now. Don't you wish that was true that every time you can sit and be fit? I mean, if all we had to do is sit and be fit, I'd be fine. Amen? Would you? Though the point of the video, as we have said every week, is that you can't believe everything you hear. Even sometimes when it's from people with good intentions, thinking they're sharing the truth with you. There's some messages that were even given in that video that do not ring out to be scripturally true. That, you know, if you're right with God, you'll have plenty of health, you know, plenty of peace. You won't be discouraged or anything like that. Look at the heroes of the faith in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, that kind of disproves that. So uh, since, though, there's so many competing voices in our culture that, that make it sound like that's the case, we wanted to take a few weeks, nine weeks to be exact, and talk about doctrine. In other words, what should we believe? A lot of stuff we shouldn't believe, a lot of stuff we need to be on guard about that we're being told, but we need to know as Christians what we, what we should believe. Today we're talking about the doctrine of the incarnation, and we're approaching it kindly by asking this question, what makes Jesus different? And that's really a great question because, see, some people in the world will say, well, there's this religious leader and that religious leader and, you know, this, this religion, that religion. So why should we listen to Jesus and follow him as opposed to all others? Or maybe we need to ask ourselves, why is Jesus different than you or I? Or how, by Jesus being different, how is it that he can be the Savior? How is it that he alone can be the one that goes to the cross and sheds his blood on the cross for our sins? So it's a really good question that we ought to ask. We're going to kind of use this as our jumping off point in uh, John chapter 1 in verse 14. The Bible says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory... Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when it says the Word became flesh, that's talking about Jesus. And one way we know that, there are other ways, but one way we know it is to jump over in Revelation, because in Revelation we find this. He is clothed, talking about Jesus, with a robe dipped in blood. And then notice the last part. And His name is called the Word of God. So here in, in John chapter 1, when John, under divine inspiration, writes, the Word became flesh, that's who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the second part of the triune God, becoming flesh. The word actually in the Greek is the Greek word logos, and probably a lot of you have heard that before and heard about that word. Here's what it literally means. Something said, a subject or discourse, a reasoning, a motive... But when you have the definite article, the, put in front of it, it always refers to the divine expression, who is Christ. In other words, God in the flesh is who it's talking about. That second person of the Trinity becoming human flesh. Now, I want you to take that word study for a moment and, and look at the significance of it on the, on the next slide uh, here. Jesus becoming flesh. Remember what it said a moment ago, the, the word logos is, is, is speaking, something being said. Well, when, when Jesus became flesh, that's God speaking to this world. I mean, if you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. 
When, when Jesus became flesh, it, it's like the subject of God in the flesh or a discourse that God put in this world in the life of Jesus. Jesus in the flesh is the reason of God and the motive of God. He's the word that became flesh. God, the second part of the triune God, entered into world history, into human history. That's what's being said by that. And as John writes, he wrote this. We have, it depends on your translation, we, have, we saw him or we've seen him or we beheld him. And that means to look closely at the word that's used there. In other words, you know, John's not just saying, well, hey, over there's Jesus. We kind of looked at him. What he's saying is this. We closely looked at Jesus. We, we inspected his life. We observed him in a close way. That's what's being said by that word when it says there that we have, have seen him or we, we saw him. And, and it said that he was as of, the glory that he had was as of the Father. And that means in the same manner with. Look at what's found over in, uh, in 1 John. Very first part of 1 John to kind of give you a better idea of what I'm, what I'm saying. Next slide. That which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, which we have heard, John saying we, we heard him talk, which we have seen, saw him with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, real body, not just some kind of spirit, human body that he came in. We've touched with our hands concerning what? The word of life, Jesus being the word. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What all did John just say there? He said we literally listened to him, we saw him, and we touched him. They had intimate, close contact with who Jesus is, God in the flesh. And what they come around saying, what John says as a result of that is this. We beheld his glory, the glory of what? The one and only, the glory of God the Father. John is clearly saying that Jesus is God in the flesh, and we observed him in that way. Jesus performed many miracles in order to prove that's exactly who he was. We're told about 40 miracles or so that we're, that we're actually told about in the Bible. There's a lot more the Bible says wasn't written because you couldn't even contain all of it in the world, the number of volumes that could be written. That's what the Bible tells us. But there are about 40 miracles that Jesus actually performed. And as he is doing those miracles, he's proven who he is. And you see, the significance of that is we get hung up over heroes or superheroes. I mean, people have sports heroes or music heroes or movie heroes, whatever the case might be. And people look at those heroes and say, I wish I could be like them. Or, or even superheroes. I mean, when I was growing up, that's when they had, you know, all the magazines and stuff. I'm, I, if I had some of those magazines, see, I'm getting old. If I had some of those original magazines, I could make some money. And you had like the Superman magazines and the Spider-Man magazines and, and Batman magazines and, you know, things like that. I, one of my personal favorites is one some of you might not have ever heard of before. You ever heard of The Flash? You know, I, I don't know why. Maybe I perceive myself wanting to be that fast or something. 
And today all of it's coming back because they're making movies about all these characters. And that just tells us there's an interest that people have in something like a superhero. Well, see, here's the deal with that. Jesus is the real superhero. Jesus is the only superhero. So if we're looking at somebody we want to model our life after, if we're looking at someone that we want to follow, why not it be Jesus instead of all these other things? He came in the flesh as God in the flesh, and he did real miracles. I mean, he was virgin born. He walked on water. He stilled the storm. He healed the blind and the lame and raised the dead. He was nailed to a cross and dismissed his spirit when he wanted to, was buried, took his life back up when he wanted to. He ascended and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And I'm just telling you, if we're going to follow somebody, why not follow somebody that did real stuff? Jesus really lived and he really did all these Amazing things. How could he do it? Because of the incarnation. Because God became flesh. Because of the incarnation. We've got Easter right around the corner. And some of you may be thinking, why in the world are you talking about the incarnation? That's Christmas stuff when Easter's right around the corner. Here's why. If we didn't have the incarnation, there's no reason to worry about Easter. If God did not come in the flesh, see, if Jesus were just like you and I, just a man that died, the resurrection wouldn't have happened to start with. Easter would have no significance whatsoever. The crucifixion would have no significance if it were not for the incarnation, God becoming flesh. What I want us to do today is ask about five questions. Because you see, I've already kind of told you a lot of basic stuff about what the incarnation is. I mean, you can just boil it down. I can say, the incarnation is this. The second part of the triune God became flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins. Took his life back up through faith in him. We have everlasting life. We could go home. Some of you are wishing, oh, can we leave now? But you see, we need to understand it a little bit deeper, the incarnation. So let's ask ourselves about five questions today. And uh, see what, uh, what we can learn about the incarnation. Here's the, the first question. Question number one is simply this. What is meant by the incarnation? Now, for some of you, you think, oh, I already know. But you know what? We may have someone here that doesn't. So, so what is meant by that term incarnation? It, it's a Latin word. I mean, you don't find it in, in the Hebrew or, or the Greek. It's a Latin word that theologians use to simply describe this, becoming flesh. It's a theological word talking about the second person of the Trinity entering human history as the God-man. That's who Jesus is. It means the eternal Son of God became flesh. He didn't have his beginning in Bethlehem. He eternally existed in eternity past. He shall always exist in eternity. But he became a man when he was incarnate on this earth, just as much man as he was God and just as much God as he was man. That's the basic meaning of of what the Word talks about when you think about incarnation. But the significance of that phrase, the Word became flesh, you need to think about how how the Hebrews viewed the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, the Hebrews viewed the Bible, the Word of God, as being the very presence of God. That's how highly esteemed they held the Word of God to be. They viewed the Bible, the Word of God, as being God's action or God's activity or God's authority. 
They view the Word of God as, as, as the Word of God being an agent that's accomplishing the will of God. And a way to illustrate that is, you know, we know that God spoke all creation into existence. That, that's a, a picture of how important God's Word is. God speaks it, and it becomes true, and it is done. So the reason we need to understand that in the background, to look at Jesus as the incarnation, is this. Since Jesus is the living Word, that means Jesus himself is the activity of God. That means Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is the very action of God. If you want to see what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. Look at the Son. Jesus is the authority of God. And that's just some background to help us understand how significant it is that he is called the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, it says this, In the beginning was the Word. Talking about Jesus. In the beginning, I'm sorry. Back up. (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In those verses, we find out the word was in the beginning. Eternal God in the beginning was Jesus, and he became flesh. The Word was with God, but don't miss this. Jesus, the eternal Word, was God, the Bible tells us. And there's not anything made that wasn't made by Him. He made all things. That means He's the Creator. In Him was God's life and God's light. In Him was the light of men, a light that exposes sin and also guides men in the direction of the Father. In His light is a light that can never be overcome by darkness, can never be extinguished. The Word became flesh. Now, let's look at some other verses just to cover uh, some other verses. In, in, uh, well, first of all, let me give you five aspects of, of Jesus real quick as a word. The word's eternal. We've already seen that. In the beginning was the word. The word's eternal. The word beginning means so far in the past you can't even go there. Jesus, as the word, has always been face-to-face with God the Father. He's equal with God the Father. Number three, Jesus, the word, while equal with the Father, is a distinct person from God the Father. The word with implies two separate persons, even though there's one God. We talked about that when we were looking at the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus, the Word, is the creator. If he's the creator, he's eternal, self-existent, and all-powerful. Jesus, the Word, became flesh. Simply means what I've already told you several times. The second person of the triune God entered human history to forever change human history. He's there to reveal the life of God, the light of God, the grace of God, the truth of God, and the glory of God. Jesus became flesh for all those things. Now look at some verses. I want to cover just some of the other examples just to give you really good evidence that what we're saying is true from the Bible, that Jesus is God in the flesh. Look at these next verses that we have. Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's why he became flesh. 
He became flesh to be our perfect sacrifice so you and I, through faith in him, could be adopted as God's sons because of what he did for us on the cross. Look at the next verse. Philippians 2, and we'll come back to this near the end of the message. But Philippians 2 says, have this attitude. So we're to have the same mindset, the same attitude that Jesus had, which in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, he poured himself out, taking on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. God in the flesh. Next verse. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, talking about Jesus, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Man, that's a great statement, isn't it? About our Savior. Next verse. Hebrews chapter 2 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's who we are, we're human. He himself likewise also partook of the same, flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He became flesh because we're flesh to redeem us out from underneath the penalty of sin. And another one. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Pay attention to this. This means if you don't believe Jesus came in the flesh, you've got a really big doctrinal problem. By this you know that the Spirit of know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is a spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that it has come and is now already in the world. It's strategic, necessary that you believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that God became man. Here's our second main question. Second question is this. How did, did people know the incarnation was going to happen? How did they know God was coming? How did they know this was going to take place? Well, the, the short answer is, you know, kind of this. God told us. God revealed it in advance. But as we answer this question, I want you to also look for this. Because as we answer this question, we're also going to discover evidence concerning that Jesus himself fulfills what we're talking about. That Jesus himself is the Messiah. So how did people know the incarnation was going to happen? God revealed it in advance through his word. You see, him being God, sovereign God, he's also sovereign over the future. He can tell us the future and be sure it comes to being. And as we look at what these verses are that we're going to bring up, we're going to discover that God foretold who was coming. We're going to discover that God told how he would come, when he would come, where and why he was coming. God revealed all of this about His Son in advance. Look how. Around 4,000 B.C., immediately after the fall, if you were here the Sunday we talked about sin, we talked about this. 4,000 years before Christ, immediately after the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve, God foretold the coming of Christ. Remember what was said there? God said this. God the Father said given a prophecy of God the Son to come, the Messiah to come, saying to Satan that you'll bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. 4,000 years before it took place. Look at the next one. 
Isaiah, around 700 years before Christ was born, foretold how Jesus would come. He said, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. What was a sign? Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that is God with us. We live in a culture today where people say, that's impossible. How? You know, well, the Bible tells me that there's nothing impossible with God. It is strategic that you have a virgin-born Savior or you don't have a Savior. And His name means God with us. And it actually happened because look what Matthew tells us. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And that means Jehovah will save. Jehovah saves. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, what Isaiah said, what we just read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Before it happened, God said it would, and here it is taking place. Look at the next one. In those few verses that we just read, we see how Jesus came and why Jesus came and who Jesus is. How did Jesus come? Virgin born. He became flesh. Why did he come? To save the people from their sins. That's what Matthew said. Who is he? He's Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Look at the next one. Micah, also around 700 B.C., foretold the birthplace of Jesus. He said, but you, O Bethlehem, Eratha, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose name... Uh, or whose origin is from old, the ancient of days. That phrase, ancient of days, means you can't even go there so long. So far in the past, Jesus, eternal God, was born in Bethlehem, and it took place. Next one. The place of Bethlehem, we're told that in Luke, the ancient of days. I've already said that. Next one, please. Uh, as to the timing of Jesus' incarnation, in 400 B.C., Malachi talked about a messenger that would be the forerunner of Jesus. He said, Behold, I send my messenger, and he'll prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he has come, and says the Lord of hosts. Who is that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes on the scene as the forerunner of Christ. God said it would happen, and it took place. Next one. Isaiah also around 700 B.C foretold why Jesus was coming and what the Messiah would experience. We don't have time to read these verses, but it'd be good this afternoon to go home and read Isaiah 52, 13, all the way down through verse 12 of chapter 53. Here's what you're going to find as you read it. We're told there the Messiah is God's arm of salvation. We're told His appearance will be marred more than any other where Jesus was beaten and crucified. We're told that he will experience sorrow and grief. He's even called a man of sorrows. Jesus experienced that in this world. Hey, you want to understand why the health and wealth gospel can't be correct? Jesus was God in the flesh, and that was not even true of his experience in the world. He will be despised. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He will carry our sorrow and grief, not just what he experienced in the world, but what we experience in the world in our sins, he will take upon himself as he goes to the cross. He will be smitten of God. And that took place, Jesus crucified. 
He will be scourged. He is pierced for man's sins. He will be numbered and die among wicked men. A thief on either side in Jesus. Sinless God in the middle is there dying for our sins. He will pray for those who are sinning against him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He will be buried in a rich man's tomb. And that's exactly what happened. But even though he gives his life up on the cross and he's buried, his days will be prolonged. That speaks of the resurrection. And he will see his offspring. That speaks of us. Because by faith, we're his offspring as we receive Christ as Savior. He will justify many. That means he will, through faith, make us as though we have never sinned before God when we trust in him. All those things are said 700 years before Jesus was even born. And Jesus fulfilled all of those things. That's how they knew that the incarnation was going to happen. That's how they knew that Jesus was coming. Because he had told it in advance that it would take place. Number three, question number three this morning. Is Jesus fully God and fully human? See, this is important because people will tend to make him more of one than he is the other. Or people will want to make him only one and not the other. Or people will lean off a wagon one way or the other. It's dangerous for us to do this in conservative circles, kindly, because we want to be sure that we're holding Jesus up as God. If we're not careful, we also won't let him be man. But the Bible teaches that he is fully God and fully man. He's fully God, and here's some reasons why he's fully God. First of all, God the Father says he is. That's a pretty good reason, isn't it? Look in Hebrews. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. God the Father talking about God the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. God the Father called him God. The demons called him God. Demons were also coming out of many people, and they were shouting, You're the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Even the demons knew who he was. Seeing Jesus, he cried out, talking about the, the Gadarene demonic that came up that had legion, all those demons inside of him. See, Jesus, he cried and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we, talking about all the demons of the man, have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The demons called him Son of the Most High God. Even his enemies know who he is. Look at the next one. Jesus himself said that he was God. See, some people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. How about doing something simple like read your Bible? But Jesus remained silent. Here he is before the high priest. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so. In other words, he said what you've said is true. And then Jesus said to him this. But I tell you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, talking about God the Father, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, see, the high priest knew exactly that he claimed to be God there because look what the high priest does. The high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard, now heard his blasphemy. In other words, he claimed to be God. Look at the next one. 
John, it says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Think about that. Before Abraham was, I am. That's what Jesus said. He's claiming to be God, eternal God, in eternity past. They understood what he was saying, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Now, here's the way I think that happened. I don't think Jesus got John and Peter and all like that hid behind him and said, let's get me out of here. He's God in the flesh. I think he just made it where they couldn't see him. Or he became invisible, where the case is. But either way, he's showing here also that he is God. Look at the other reason why. The Bible in many places tell us that Jesus is God. Matthew calls him Emmanuel. We've already seen that God with us. Thomas said to Jesus on the other side of the resurrection, My Lord and my God. Romans says, Christ, who is God over all. Titus, there in Titus, we find these words that Paul wrote. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 John, we find this. It refers to Jesus as the true God. In 2 Peter, it says, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 1 Timothy, it says, King and the only God. You can't get away from it. Read your Bible. The Bible says over and over again, Jesus is God. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus has called the names of God. He's called the Son of Man, Son of God, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, plus many, many more. Jesus possessed and displayed the attributes of God. Eternality, immortality, invisibility, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscience, creator, knowing all things. All that is attributed to Jesus in the Bible. Jesus did the works of God. About 40 miracles that I said earlier we're told about that proved his deity. Jesus lived a sinless life, the absence of any sin. He even challenged people, if you can accuse me of sin, prove I sin, do it. And they couldn't do it, so they made up stuff to where they could crucify him. They tried to trap him. Jesus' own disciples who inspected him closely, like we said earlier, they write in their epistles that he was sinless, that he was perfect. Jesus forgave sin. And the Bible tells us the only one that can forgive sin is who? God. Jesus is God. People worshiped him as God. And Jesus didn't say, no, don't do it. Look what Jesus did. He even, he even tells them to pray to him and he'll answer their prayers. Whatever you ask in my name. I mean, most of the time we get that part, right? Well, you notice the rest of that. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. He didn't say this God the Father will do. He, he's saying, pray to me and I will answer that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In John 5, it says, so that all will honor the Son. Honor is a form of worship, even as they honor the Father. In the triumphant entry there in Matthew, they're worshiping as Jesus comes riding in. And the religious crowd is over there and said, tell them to shut up. We don't like it. Jesus said if they did, even the rocks would cry out. Even the rocks recognize who he is. You ever heard the phrase, dumber than a rock? If you don't believe Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that's who you are. You're dumber than a rock. Because the Bible says that the rocks would cry out and proclaim who he is. Jesus is fully God. But Jesus also is this. He's fully human. He's fully human. Like I said, conservative circles, we don't have any trouble saying he's fully God. 
But we need to understand something. Just as much as he's fully God, he's also fully human. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches. He was given a human name, Jesus, Jehovah, saved. His title is not his last name. His title is Christ. That means he's the anointed one. Jesus had a human genealogy there in Matthew. You can read about his heritage. He was born of a woman. Racially, he was born Jewish. He was born a baby like we were, and he grew physically like we grow physically. He experienced fatigue, hunger, thirst, pain. He worked as a carpenter. He celebrated holidays. Some of you are going to like this. He went to parties. Quit acting so self-righteous. I'm thinking, oh, Jesus went to party. That means I go to party. You can't. just need to be careful what you do while you're there. He loved his mother. I mean, in all things, it just show us that, that he's human. Yes, he's fully God, but he is also fully human. In the Bible, I've already read the verse, but I want to challenge you with it again. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You have to have him fully God and fully human. Now, these next two things where it gets a little bit more practical. Because you see, up to this point, you might be thinking, well, all that's, you know, good stuff, but what, what does it mean to me? So our question number four is this. Why should the incarnation of Christ comfort us? Why, why should it provide comfort to us? The fact that Jesus became flesh. Really for two reasons. First of all, I'm going to talk to you just a minute about how Jesus is like us. And then I'm going to talk to you about how Jesus is unlike us. And both of these thoughts should provide comfort for us. How is Jesus like us? I mean, how and why should that provide comfort for us? See, we ought to be comforted by this truth. God became man. He experienced what we've experienced. He, he faced temptations. He faced like the hunger and the, and the pain and the sorrow and heartbreak that we experience in life. It ought to comfort us. He came in the flesh so he can relate to us. But more than that, because he's the God-man, he came in the flesh so he could be our high priest and mediate for us and stand between us and holy God. Look at what the Bible says. Since then, we have a great high priest talking about Jesus who has passed through the heavens. I mean, think about that. Why, why should we be comforted? We have a high priest that ascended and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father after he himself was our sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, Jesus understands. We'll go on pity parties sometime and I got nobody knows what I'm going through and nobody cares. Jesus understands. He's been where you are. He's experienced the heartache. He's experienced the sorrow. He's experienced the suffering. He's experienced discouragement in his life. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus in his humanity experienced discouragement. He's been where you are. So that ought to provide comfort to you. The reality that he has been where you are. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Not just as he experienced some of the junk we face in life. He's been tempted like we were tempted. Jesus understands what it is to face temptation. He understands where you are when you're going through that in your life. Even though he was tempted, he was yet without sin because he was sinless. And because of that, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Because Jesus is those things, we can approach God's throne with confidence, understanding that Jesus understands, Jesus sympathizes, Jesus knows, Jesus has been through it before, He knows what I'm going through. And I'm just telling you, all those things ought to provide comfort to you to know that Jesus has been through those things. Hebrews 9, 26 says this, For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He's not like the Old Testament high priest that had every year to sacrifice. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't carry a lamb. He is the lamb, and he sacrificed himself for our sins. The former priests, it says in Hebrews chapter 7, the former priests were many in number. Why? Because they were human and they would die. Be in office and out of office. But because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office, but... He holds his priesthood permanently. He will never, ever give it up because he's eternal God. Because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You want a comforting thought about Jesus understanding about God coming in the flesh and being able to relate to us. And here's a comforting thought above Comforting thoughts. Right now, Jesus, if you're a Christian, right now, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God, and He's praying for every hurt. He's praying for every disappointment. He's praying for your pain, for your disease. He's bringing you constantly before God. Not just for us. Think about it. He's doing it for Christians all over this world, all at the same time. We have a great Savior who prays for us. I mean, it's one thing to hear that some of you pray for me. God, I appreciate when I know that you're praying for me. And some of you tell me that you pray for me. And, 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 and if you don't have prayer going on in your life, we need to be more about prayer. And we need to find more avenues to pray here in our church. I know Bill's had a burden for that for a while. I think I'm just getting ready to say, Bill, that's a real big burden in your heart. You need to be our prayer chairman. <laughs> we need to pray. And, and it's good to know other people are praying for us. But I'll tell you what, to know that God, the Son, is praying for me. There's comfort in the fact that he became flesh and he accomplished what he did on the cross and he has ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. We ought to be comforted because he's like us, but we also ought to be comforted because he is unlike us. What do I mean by that? I mean that he's God and he's sinless. And that ought to comfort us because he is God and he's sinless. And the Bible says he who he made him, talking about the Father making the Son, 
who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The fact that Jesus, who knew no sin, took all of my sin and all of your sin, and He became sin for us on the cross, that ought to give us comfort because He's unlike us, because He's perfect, sinless God, and that allowed Him to be our Savior. That ought to comfort us because of what He's done for us. Last question. What practical difference should the incarnation make in our lives? What practical difference should the incarnation make in our lives? The last point has some stuff that was personal. I hope it provided you comfort. It's not just a bunch of head knowledge, a bunch of theological facts, a bunch of seminary stuff about Jesus being God in the flesh. It comforts us. Should. And up front, I told you to begin with, in the introduction of this message, without the incarnation, there's no need to have the crucifixion. Without the incarnation, we don't have a true gospel. Without the incarnation, we don't have a Savior who's God in the flesh, who can pay for our sins because He was perfect, sinless God. But what I want you to get right now, if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to really get this last question, these last few points. Because what we're going to do is look at this. We're going to look at the fact that Jesus lived a missional model for us. Do you understand what that means? Jesus ought to be our missional model. Jesus came here, sent from the Father with a mission. And while he's here on this earth, he gives us a model that we ought to follow in our own lives. About 40 times in John's gospel, Jesus, just in John's gospel, said this, The Father sent me. And he did. The Father sent the Son for a purpose, for a reason. But then Jesus looks at his disciples, and I think this still has application to us, because as believers today, we're supposed to be his disciples. Then Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Notice this. As, or in the same way, in the same manner, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So Jesus is going to be our missional model, and we look at how God the Father sent him into this world to make a difference. You and I need to understand Jesus has sent us now into the world as his disciples to make a difference in the world around us. That's why the incarnation ought to make a practical difference in our lives. See, here's the difference about Christianity. You know, most religions in the world, they're holy men. They're holy men. They're holy people. They'll go up on high mountains and live there and distance themselves from the world. Or they'll lock themselves in a monastery and be a monk separating themselves from the world with the idea that they're holy and they need to stay away from the world. And regrettably, in our day and time, I'm afraid we have churches and church members and Christians who follow the same mentality that we'll come together here on Sunday inside the four walls of the church and we'll pull away from this sinful culture, this society that's around us, and we'll fail to understand that's violating the model that Jesus even gave in his own life. God the Father sent God the Son into a world of sinners. 
And we are not to be churches and people who say they're following Jesus and we come on Sunday inside the four walls of a country club church and we don't carry it out to a lost and dying world. Jesus gave us a missional model that we ought to follow. A model of being a missionary. That's the way you need to view yourself. Wherever you find yourself, you ought to consider yourself you're a missionary in that moment, in that place, wherever you are. I want to give you five practical truths out of the life of Jesus that ought to make a, a huge practical difference in our lives. Here's the first one. The missional incarnate life of Jesus. I know that sounds like heady stuff. That simply means this. Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh, had a mission that he was carrying on in this world. The missional incarnate life of Jesus was contextual and cross-cultural barriers. What do I mean by contextual? By contextual, I mean this. Jesus shared with those around him, taught them, lived examples before them in ways that those people could understand. He would teach different ways, sometimes perform miracles in different ways, use parables in different ways, because he wanted to be sure those he was in community with in that moment could understand what he was saying. And I'm afraid that's the challenge that the church might miss a lot in this day and time. Because we need to understand as we live for Jesus and try and share the gospel with people around us, we need to bear in mind the context that we're in. We need to bear in mind the people that we're trying to listen, to get to listen, the people we're trying to minister to. How will they hear? Because maybe if we don't put it in a way that they'll hear, they won't hear. And Jesus set that as an example in his own life. By crossing cultural barriers, I mean, Jesus did this. In his earth ministry, his earthly ministry, he, he violated a lot of the legalistic rules that people had come up with in that day and time. I mean, here's an example of it. In that day and time, if you're a woman, you're expected to be over here to the side, wear a head cover, and keep your mouth shut. Men, you better not say Amen. Do you realize that Jesus has some women following him around in his ministry? Do you realize that? Jesus had women involved following him around in the ministry? They had this idea of we're, you know, we're holy people, so we're off here at the side. We're the Pharisees. We're better than everybody else. And Jesus was going to where they think he shouldn't go and doing things that they thought Jesus shouldn't do. Because here's what Jesus said. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. Aren't you glad he's a friend of sinners? And Jesus said, yet wisdom is justified by our deeds. What was the biggest kind of stuff they could accuse him with? He's over there partying with the sinners. He ought to be hanging out with us. But he's over there with the sinners. Now this might blow somebody away that's here today that might not have thought about this. But I honestly believe if Jesus was incarnate today instead of then, you'd find him down at the bar in the nightclubs or places like that trying to win somebody. 
trying to invade their lives. I'm not saying that we're to approve what's going on or we're to endorse what's going on or we're to practice sinful practices in our life. I'm not saying we're to adopt the culture. We're to engage the culture around us with the gospel. We're to break down barriers such as that. And we live, the church can, can be so missing the mission that God has before us. There are a lot of churches that, that would completely write off to start with someone that's wrestling with a homosexual lifestyle and not want them around, not want to be around them or anything else. I thank God I've seen some people that have wrestled with that come to Christ and had their life changed. You know, we live in a culture, so some, some people are off limits. Don't look like us, don't act like us. We need to be willing to break cultural barriers. Number two, the missional incarnate life of Jesus was an evangelistic life. I know Jesus did a lot of ministry to people. He, he did a lot of things where he touched their lives and helped them with their pains and suffering, diseases, and things like that. But here's why he did it. He didn't do it just to have a social agenda or social ministry taking place. He did it to impact their lives for God. You see, some churches will go that direction. Well, let's just, we'll socially minister to people, and we should do that. But we have to do it with a goal of introducing people to Jesus Christ. That's why we're to do those kinds of ministries. See, Jesus came for this reason. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He didn't come to help people that were not sick and needed Him. He came for those that were sin sick. And that needs to be our model as we try and touch somebody's life. It ought to be to get them to Jesus. If you socially minister to somebody or physically minister to somebody's needs, don't do it just so they'll think, oh, that person was nice, they helped me. Do it so you earn the right to tell them about Jesus. And then tell them. I mean, pop the question, push the agenda. Tell them about Jesus. He gave us this as a command. Go therefore make disciples. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.